Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message to listen to the latest stories and to leave a comment. Well, it's that time. It's Tuesday, and that means that we are graced with the wonderful, the only, and uh, I tell you what, he does a great job, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. How are you, buddy? Great. Do you have anybody to thank? I do. Uh, I want to thank Alex. He has written to me several times and has made some suggestions I appreciate. And (laughs) the Schnitzel (laughs) Flooster. Wait wait, wait a minute. May I I make a suggestion? Yeah. Sometimes with the way that you come out with pronunciations, let's be real careful with that one. (laughs) That's what he goes by. What is that? The Schnitzel Flooster. He's Schnitzel Flooster. He's over there in Germany, I believe. I wouldn't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So anyway, a week or so ago, I mentioned about Father DeSmit, who was uh, helped with some of the wagon trains coming west. And so he sent me some really good information on the snitchel flooster yes and i'm never going to forget that now. He, he even sent me a map look at this zeb and that's what i'm going to be showing you or talking to you is about is that a today. map of what oh it's all the western states no no it's uh north dakota uh iowa nebraska oh okay uh right. south dakota so but i'm going to be referring to that in the story and i'm going to talk about somebody today that i'm going to bet 98% of the people will recognize. Her name is Laura Elizabeth Ingalls Wilder. Oh, yes. Little House on the Prairie. Exactly. So uh, she has quite an interesting story. She was born just after the end, <clears throat> the end of the Civil War. She was born in 1867. Well, I got a drink already, Zed. Yeah, I know. Boy, I wish that was just water. I'm car- I'm worried about you. <laughs> so she was born in 1867, and of course, known for the Little House on the Prairie series of, actually, they were children's books, and they were published between 1932 and 1943, and they were based on her childhood uh, in a settler and a pioneer family. Did Michael Landon, when he produced and starred in that show, did he stay pretty close to the general concepts um, of the book? I don't know. I don't know. I, uh, you know, with with movies and TV, there's always some leeway, you know, which way they go. But it's based on her book. Yeah. 
But, uh, of course, that was uh, the movie starred Melissa Gilbert as Laura and Michael Landon as her father, right. Charles. Right. Now, Laura Elizabeth Ingalls was born to Charles Philip and Carolyn Ingalls uh, on February 7th, 1867. At the time of her birth, the family lived seven miles north of the village of Pepin, Wisconsin, in the Big Woods regions of Wisconsin. Spell that, Pepin. I'd like to... P-E-P-I-N. And it's on the western... Kind of the western central part of the state of Wisconsin. I do not know where that is. It must is. be very small. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, her home became the setting for her first book, which was called Little House in the Big Woods. She was the second of five children following an older sister whose name was Mary. Uh, three more children would follow. Uh, uh, Ingalls Wilder's birth uh, site is actually commemorated by a replica log cabin at this little house in Pepin. So there's a little kind of memorial there. So, basically, it was Pepin, Wisconsin. Yes, and, but, but there's some other places where she wrote as uh, well. Okay. Yeah, so uh, she was a descendant of the De- Delano family, uh, the ancestral family of U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Mm. She was a third cousin, once removed, of President Ulysses S. Grant. When she was two years old, she moved with her family from Wisconsin in 1869. After stopping in Rothville, Missouri, they settled in the Indian country of Kansas near modern-day Independence, Kansas. So that's clear down kind of in the southeast uh, corner of Kansas. Now, according to Ingalls Wilder, her father, Charles, had been told that the location would be open to white settlers. But when they arrived, this was not the case. The Ingalls family had no legal right to occupy their homestead because it was on the Osage Indian Reservation. So they got some false information somehow. But they had just begun to farm when they heard rumors that settlers would be thrown out. So they left in the spring of 1871. Although in her novel, Little House on the Prairie and Pioneer Girl Memoir, Ingalls Wilder portrayed their departure as being prompted by rumors of eviction. She also noted that her parents needed to recover their Wisconsin land because whoever bought it was not making the payments. So they had to go back there. So they went back back to to Wisconsin, and they lived there for the next three years. Now, those experiences formed the basis for her novels, Little House. House in the Big Woods and Little House on the Prairie. Oh. Now, there's another book she wrote on the banks of Plum Cree, and uh, this was the third volume of her history. Well, and she says fictionalized history, so we know there was obviously some things that she took for granted. Uh, but that takes place in 1874. The Ingalls family moved from Kansas to an area near Walnut Grove, Minnesota. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of in the south kind of western part of Minnesota. Yeah, I know where that is. Yeah. yeah. But they actually lived in a dugout on the banks of Plum Creek. Uh, so, you know, you've seen pictures of dugouts, and they're not a very comfortable place to live, I guess, but they're protected from the from the elements. But yeah. anyway, they moved there from Wisconsin when Ingalls was about seven years old, and after briefly living with the family of her uncle Peter Ingalls, first in Wisconsin, then on some rented land near Lake City, Minnesota, 
in Walnut Grove. The family first lived, like I said, in a dugout sod house on a claim, and they lived there throughout the winter. They moved into a new house built on the same land. Now, things kind of went bad. They had two summers of the crops that were ruined, led them to move to Iowa. And on the way, they stayed again with Charles's brother, Peter, and this time on his farm near South Troy, Minnesota. Mm. Okay. Um, her brother, Charles Frederick Ingalls, who they call Freddie, was born there in 1875, but he actually died nine months later. And, you know, Zeb, we know that a lot of kids didn't survive childhood back in those days. Yeah. But uh, the family helped run a hotel there. The youngest of the Ingalls children, Grace, was born in 1877. Now, the family moved from Burr Creek or Burr Oak back to Walnut Grove, where her father, Charles, served as the town butcher and justice of the peace. He accepted a railroad job in the spring of 1879, which took him to eastern Dakota Territory. And then the family joined him that fall. Uh, now, Wilds, her father filed for what they called the Formal Homestead Act over the winter of 1879-80. And uh, to the listeners, the Homestead Act, as you remember, uh, there were several laws in the United States by which a person could acquire ownership of government land or the public domain. Typically, they called it a homestead. In all, more than 160 million acres or 250,000 square miles of pe- public land or nearly pe- 10% of the total area of the United States was given away free to 1.6 million homesteaders. And most of those were on the west side of the Mississippi. So he was one of the uh, 1.6 million that took advantage of that. Charles was. Yeah, her okay. father. Yeah. All right. Now, we're in Dismet, South Dakota. And again, that's kind of in South Dakota on the middle eastern side of the state. Where it gets really cold. Yeah, I'm sure it would, yeah. Uh, and this is where her parents and her sister Mary's home would be for the remainder of their lives. Uh, after spending the mild winter of 79-80 in a surveyor's house, they watched the town of DeSmit rise up, and again, it was named for this Father DeSmit. So, from a prairie in 1880, the following year, 1880-81, one of the most severe on record in the Dakotas winter was re- it was later described in her novel, The Long Winter. Mm-hmm. Now, once the family was settled into Smith, Ingalls attended school. She worked several part-time jobs and made some friends. Among them was a bachelor homesteader named Almanzo Wilder. Wild. Okay. Oh. See where this is going? Oh, the so, fires of romance. Yes. This time in her life is documented in her books, The Little Town on the Prairie and These Happy Golden Years. Uh-huh. Now... So here we are, December 10th, 1882. She's not married yet. Uh, two months before her 16th birthday, so she's only 15, Ingalls accepted her first teaching position. She taught... At 16 years of age? 50, yeah, almost 16. Wow. But she taught three terms in a one-room school when she was not attending school in DeSmith. So she was teaching and going to school. I see. And just to throw something in, Zeb, my dad's first teaching job was in a one-room schoolhouse south of Filer, the other side of Twin Falls, and he taught there for about a year, and he had grades one through, I think, six. Really? And I, my sister and I were just, of course, one, two years old, three years old, and I still remember that little one-room schoolhouse that where my dad started. I went to a one-room schoolhouse. Did you? Yeah, Curtis okay. Mill Elementary. All right. Yeah. Well... 
Actually, after that experience, she later admitted she did not particularly enjoy it, but felt a responsibility from a young age to help her family financially. And wage-earning opportunities for women were pretty limited. So between 1883 and 85, she taught three terms of school. She worked for the local dressmaker and attended high school, although she actually did not even graduate. Hmm. Now... So they it, didn't have teacher certificates, right? I, probably not. But I think if you qualified, it didn't matter what you had. Now, her teaching career and studies ended when now at 18 years old, she married 28-year-old Almanzo Wilder in 1885 in DeSmet, South Dakota. Now, from the beginning of their relationship, the pair had nicknames for each other. She called him Manly, and because he had a sister named Laura, he called her Bessie because her middle name was Elizabeth. So, Manly and and Bessie. I'll bet they had other names, too. (laughs) They could have. Really nice, sweet (laughs) names. Uh, I I really think so. Now, Almanzo had actually kind of uh, achieved a degree of prosperity on his homestead claim, and the newly married couple started their life together in a new house north of DeSmet. And on December 5th, 1886, Wilder gave birth to her daughter, Rose, the first one. And then she gave birth to a son who died at 12 days. Oh, my. Uh, you know, for whatever reason. And he's buried there at DeSmit. And the grave marker just says, baby son of A.J. Wilder. Really? So their first few marriage of, uh, years of marriage were kind of difficult. Complications from a life, life-threatening bout of diphtheria left Almanzo partially paralyzed. Really? Now, keep in mind, you know, Zeb, if you couldn't physically work, it was tough going. Yeah. What did he do, by the way? Well, uh, let, me, let me move on here. Let's okay. see what, uh, what comes out here. Right. He actually eventually regained nearly full use of his legs, but he needed a cane to walk the re- for the remainder of his life. Uh, this setback, among some others, began a series of kind of unfortunate events that included, of course, what I mentioned, the death of their newborn son, then the destruction of their barn, along with his hay and grain, by a mysterious fire, the total loss of their home from a fire accidentally set by their daughter Rose, and several years of drought that left them totally in debt, physically ill, and unable to earn a living from, by now they had 320 acres of prairie. And his inability to work, you know, things were not very good. Mm. So these trials were documented in Wilder's first book, The First Four Years. Then around 1890, they left DeSmet and spent about a year resting at the home of Almanzo's parents on their Spring Valley, Minnesota farm. And then they moved briefly to Westville, Florida, because they thought if they went down there, it might help with Almanzo's health. Wow, that's a transition. Yeah, that's quite a ways. But, you know, they found, however, that the dry plains they were used to was very different from the humidity they encountered in Florida. Now, the weather, and they also, they really felt out of place among the local people there, and so that kind of encouraged them to move back to DeSmet, South Dakota, and they purchased a small home. Now, a year or so later, in 1894, the Wilders moved to Mansfield, Missouri. Uh, Now, Mansfield, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, Yeah, Mansfield is right down on the southern middle part of Missouri, so quite a ways farther south. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and they used their savings to make the down payment on an undeveloped property outside of town, and they named the place Rocky Ridge Farm, and they moved into the kind of an old beat-up log cabin, and at first their only income was they would load up a a load of firewood and sell it in town for 50 cents, a load of firewood cut and split. So they were a family of not very many means. No, they were not. So, but financial security came slowly. They planted some apple trees, but actually they didn't bear any fruit for seven years. So, again, things were pretty tough. Now, Almanzo's parents visited around that time and actually paid for and gave them the deed to the house that they'd been renting. Whatever happened to Charles, uh, her father and mother? Um, I know, I'm not sure what happened to them. Uh, it doesn't really tell me what happened. Huh. So, but, so they had this area. They then added to the property outside of town. Eventually, they had 200 acres. And now, around 1910, they sold the house in town, moved back to the farm, and com- completed the farmhouse uh, with the proceeds. And what began as about a 40-acre wooded farm uh, with rocks and stone, uh, they had a windowless log cabin, became, in 20 years, a pretty nice area. Now, did, how old was she then? Uh, let's see, this would have been 1910, so what, about 35 or so? 35 years yeah. old. But uh, they actually kind of had a prosperous business going. They had a poultry, they had a dairy, a fruit farm, and actually a 10-room farmhouse. And that, you know, pretty nice. Pretty big house. Yeah. But the Wilders had learned from cultivating wheat as their sole crop into Smith, they diversified Rocky Ridge Farm with a poultry, a dairy farm, a large apple orchard, and Wilder became active in various clubs and was an advocate for several regional farm associations. She was recognized as an authority in poultry farming and rural living, and this led her to be asked to speak at different groups around the country. So Now, this is Laura. Yeah, this okay. is Laura. So uh, she actually got an invitation to submit an article to the Missouri Ruralist in 1911, and that led to her permanent position as a columnist and editor with that uh, newspaper. And she held that until for about 10 years, into the mid-1920s. Mm-hmm. She also took a paid position with the local Farm Loan Association, uh, dispensing f- small loans to local farmers. And keep in mind, Zip, she never did graduate from high school, as I mentioned, yeah. but she had to be a pretty sharp person oh yeah well her column in the magazine or in the paper uh which was titled as a farm woman thinks introduced her to a loyal audience of uh the ozarkians who enjoyed her columns her topics ranged from home and family including a trip to san francisco to visit her daughter rose and you know the couple were never wealthy until really until the little houses uh, books began to become popular and uh, the farming operation and her income from writing and the Farm Loan Association provided them with, you know, a, actually by now a pretty stable living. Really? Now, this and they were up probably about then, what, 65, 70? Uh, getting up that way, yeah. yeah. But uh, the stock market crash of 1929 wiped the Wilders out. They still owned the 200-acre farm, but it totally wiped them out. Uh, so... Now, the original Little House books written for elementary school age children kind of became a, a really f- popular eight-volume record of pioneer life late in the 19th century and, of course, based on the Eagles family experiences on the American frontier. So it became very, very popular, and I think 
you know, probably originally she thought it was only going to be maybe for a children's book or, yeah. you know, elementary yeah. kids. But uh, the book uh, by now has been translated into 40 other languages. My, my, my. I mean, just an amazing uh, uh, story. Uh, anyway, uh, in uh, autumn of 1956, 89-year-old uh, Wilder, her husband, became severely ill. Or no, her, her, he actually had already died uh, about 10 years before, but uh, she became really ill from uh, maybe diabetes or heart issues. She was hospitalized, but she was able to return home, but her health just declined, and after her release from the hospital, she died at home in her sleep. On February 10th, 1957, wow. three days after her 90th birthday. You know, it brings to mind a question. You and I have talked about this on the program before. We always said that we would like to try to get descendants of the stories and the people. What about her family? Well, she had this daughter, Rose. And Rose actually became a writer uh, in and of herself. And there, there's some dispute about... Rose being the oldest daughter, if Rose was like, uh, helped write some of these books. And so there's a little contention or about who really wrote all the books. So there's a little fuzziness there. But if she died, Laura Ingalls died in 1956. 57. 57. Yeah. And let's say that she had a daughter. She'd have direct descendants possibly oh, yeah. living right now today. Yeah. Well, her daughter would have been what, uh, in 1957, she would have been, well, 20 years younger. Yeah. So should have been. It'd be interesting if we could find someone yeah. that is of the descendancy of that family. Yeah, and you know, uh, after they actually wanted to put together a uh, thing to purchase the house where she lived and make it kind of a visitor center, uh, make it a museum, and uh, actually the daughter donated money to try to make this happen, but. Uh, you know, the popularity of the Little House books has grown over the years. Let me ask you another question. We're almost out of time. i got about 30 seconds. But how did Michael Landon, as the producer, do you know the story about how they found the book and the story of Laura Ingalls and turned that into a TV series? You know, I don't know how that all started uh, or who came up with the idea. Uh, But, you know, I'm... I don't know if it was him or a producer or a director or somebody said, hey, let's look at these books and yeah. let's, uh, uh, and again, you know, there's a lot of characters in there that uh, that are probably not really in the books, but it's based on the the stories of, of her, of Laura. That's interesting. Elizabeth Ingalls. That is yeah. really interesting because maybe we could do some follow-up and find out how that went all the way to the television screen. You know, I, I could look into that because yeah. that's uh, that does make me curious how that uh, finally developed yeah. into a, a, a well-known, uh, popular uh, movie series. Absolutely. Yeah. Boy, that was interesting. Thank you because I can remember vividly every – I think it was on Wednesday night – Little House on the Prairie. Oh, I sure. never missed it. Yeah, and the characters on Yeah, there, they were good. Know, they, they were they fun were to watch, yep. yes. You did it again. Thank you, Zeb. Thank you. Drive carefully. Mush your huskies in the snow. I hope not. Okay. <laughs> God bless you, Dr. History. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.